And uh, something else I want to announce to you before we jump into the text is, if you have a bulletin, you should have received one of these cards. And if you have that, why don't you go ahead and pull it out. It has a graphic on the front with the phrase and the question, why do I doubt? We'll just read this. Have you ever had doubts about the truth of Christianity? Well, I can ask for a show of hands, but probably most of us have at one time or another. If you have, join the crowd. But is doubt the same as unbelief? If you doubt, does it mean that you don't have faith or that your faith is inferior? Is it possible to believe in Christianity and not check your brain at the door? Come with us as we induct, conduct a fascinating investigation into doubt and its solutions. So, next week, I implore you, I encourage you to the best of my abilities... Try your best to make it these next six weeks. And if you know someone who has been going through uh, possibly a death in the family, uh, a divorce, a split up, uh, a job loss, whatever whatever it can be, maybe a letter from the IRS, any type of suffering, this is going to be good for the soul. The scriptures that we're going to cover in these next six weeks are absolutely exhilarating for the Christian Brother and sister who loves Jesus and has been serving Him, but sometimes you get battle fatigue, don't you? Have you ever been there in your Christian walk? You say, Lord, I'm trying to serve you to the best of my abilities, but it seems that in my life and in my family's life and with my friends, things just keep going downhill. Lord, if you love me so much, why don't you take care of me? And then we begin to doubt if God can take care of us or if God wants to take care of us. These next six weeks, I just encourage you to make your best effort to be here and bring someone that you know who's hurting. Now, now don't walk up to them and be like, hey, Pastor Jeff's going to talk about messed up people the next six weeks. And I thought that that may be you, right? Like, don't, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. But you can give them the card. This is for you to give away. We've got some on our back table. Some over here. Get as many as you want. Um, we got them printed from Liberty for basically nothing. So for the cheap skates in here, it was literally pennies. Uh, per card. So in a Baptist church, you always need to make that disclaimer. Amen. All right. So I am absolutely excited. I'm pumped about this study on doubt because once again, it is the elephant in the room that most Christians will never admit because we we never want to show up in our Sunday school class and the Sunday school teachers say, do we have any questions? And you say, yeah, is what you just taught actually true? Right? Like nobody wants to be that guy or that girl to raise the whole validity of Christianity issue. But we're going to open every can we can open and by the power of the Holy Spirit we're going to close it as well. So Matthew chapter 9, this is our final message. If you have been with us these past seven weeks, this is week number eight, going through a very difficult series called Radical Together. And I want to brag on all of our Sunday school teachers here this morning. All of them took the challenge, went through the book, stuff that a lot of times is very awkward to go through in any type of a church because it's basically like, here's the Bible, what's your life like? If your life doesn't match up with this, you need to repent and change. All right, that's like a summary of the book. And our teachers, every single one of them said, I'm willing to take the challenge. And so thank you guys for doing that. The Bible in Matthew chapter 9 contains an incredible picture of radical compassion. 
We're going to, as best we can, do an expository sermon. That means that whatever I say comes from the Bible. All right? We all tracking with that? Expository means to draw out from. It means that what I say and what we study is linked to this. But we've got a whole chapter. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a little bit of hopscotch and hit the main points of Matthew chapter 9. And our driving thought, the impetus here is this. Is that the world, Christians, desperately needs to see Christ's compassion through us. Amen, church? The world, your workplace, your school students, your families, your immediate family, maybe yourself. Every person in this world needs compassion. And if you look around in the world's eyes, it's nowhere to be found. Have you ever been to that place in your life? Hopefully you've got a Christian there to help you out or a family member who loves you. But you're going through a difficult time. You know you may have done something wrong or something wrong was done to you. But you look out and you say, is there anyone who has compassion? The Bible describes Jesus' compassion in radical, radical terms. But let's, let's kind of define it. What do we mean by compassion? For some people, compassion is when they're flipping the TV station to, you know, maybe a spiritually edifying show like The Walking Dead or something like that. And they're flipping the channel or, or, and, and they, there's something that comes on and they see this child in Africa. And the child, is, its stomach is swollen and it's all shriveled up. And it's like for a split second we feel really bad because we're in our recliner, right? Or we're on our couch, even if it's old. And we've got something to drink there. And we look over and there may be the Baptist food casserole. All right, you guys tracking with me? Like it may be sitting over there and we, we look and we may have some stuff in the fridge or in the cabinet. And we feel, we feel kind of, have you ever been there? You, like you just feel guilty, right? And then for a split second, we feel really bad, right, for the kid in Ethiopia. And then we go, click, right? And then like we're on Sports Center, and it just, the thought goes away. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it speaks of compassion, pity, and mercy. In fact, what it means, and if you want to write this down, it would hopefully open your eyes to the greater picture. To have compassion for someone, according to the Bible, means to be moved in your inward parts. It means like that uncomfortable feeling in the gut to be moved in your inward parts. It means like the, 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 the deepest part of your heart. It seems like when you truly have compassion, it's not just something that you feel, but it's something that you do. Right? Are we all clear on that? The compassion is not some, some feeling to where we cry over the sports movie or we cry over seeing something bad on TV. But compassion, the way that Jesus demonstrated it, and it's actually what the Greek word means, it means to be moved in the inward parts, and then the result is that we're moved to action. Right? It's not a static type of Compassion. Let me give you two verses that may illustrate this. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, the Bible says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, Christians, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So if I'm following Christ, it means that my heart must be what? Help me out, church. It must be compassionate, right? Are we all awake? Wait, yeah. Let's say it again. Our hearts must be Compassionate. All right. Okay, another one. Luke chapter 10, verse 33. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the guy got jumped, he got robbed, left for dead there in, in his pool of his own blood. The Samaritan, who this Jewish guy would have probably hated. 
came by and the Bible says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him, when he saw the guy who had been robbed, when he saw the guy who had been beaten, the Samaritan, he had compassion. Remember what the Samaritan did, right? He walked up to the guy and said, bro, I really feel sorry for you. That must absolutely stink to get jumped, to get robbed and get beaten up. God bless you. Amen. And he walked away. Is that what happened? No, it moved him to action. Not only did he pick the guy up, he put the guy on his own animal. The Samaritan brought the guy into town, tended for his wounds, was like a first aid doctor. And then he put him up in like a, it's kind of like a, I guess we could call it like a hotel slash hospital if you needed it. And then he told the owner, look, if this guy requires any cost for staying here, put it on my tab. That's like if you can remember, this is a very shallow illustration because their racial problems go far deeper than ours in America ever have. Something like in the 60s, if you would have had a white person who would have hated a black person and a black person who would have hated a white person, but one time one of them saw the other one beaten up, lying there, and they picked them up, put them in their own car, take them to the hospital, and the white guy says, I'll pay for this guy. The black guy takes the white guy and says, I'm going to pay for his medical bills. What an incredible, compassionate type of love. So when the Bible says that we're supposed to be compassionate, it's not saying that we're supposed to just just, just feel something. Um, and what I'm about to do, I'll probably get in trouble, but I've put this off for three weeks. I've prayed about it. But I, I, I feel that I, I just need to say this, alright? So far, we're all tracking, right? There's probably no Christian in here who would say, Jeff, I'm just not sure if we should be compassionate. In fact, what I think we need is to be more hard-hearted. Nobody in here is probably going to say that, right? Like, we don't need mercy. We need to just blow people away. All right? Like, that, you know, not, not going to happen. But here is often where Christians are made to feel unbiblically guilty. All right? This is not a statement of my political beliefs. This is just a simple fact. In the last few years, we've seen an increasing consolidation of power in the federal government. If you watch TV... If you read the newspaper, that, that's just a fact, okay? So, Jeff, what are you saying? I'm saying that that's just a fact. And what often has happened that I've seen in these last three years with forums on the internet, with things that have been said in the news, that Christians are often made to feel guilty if they don't say, well, let's just let the federal government be the only ones and take all the money to take care of all the needs, If you're a Christian and that is not your persuasion, if you say, I think that we could do a better job of taking care of the poor at the local level, that's a position that you can take. Um, There's a speech given by the president on February 2nd, 2012. And the reason why I mention this is not to be political. I'm not running for office. All right. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Right. And like, oh, my goodness. All right. So I. But the reason why I'm going to mention this is because whenever politicians cross into here, And they mess this up and try to make people feel guilty. It's my job to, as best I can, tell you the truth. So the president said, for me as a Christian, it also coincides with Jesus' teaching. And he quotes Luke 12, 48. For whom much is given, much shall be required. The president was saying that statement in the context of taxing more and more so that the government can take care of people. uh, so, So forth and so on. 
But the context of Luke chapter 12 is not having anything to do with the government taking more by way of taxation. Luke chapter 12, the context is for people giving out of their own free will more to God. Are we all on the same page there? That's called eisegesis. What we do here is exegesis. That means what I say, what our Sunday school teachers teach, it comes from the Bible. Well, we, but we don't take a verse of the Bible, twist it out of its context, and try to make people feel guilty if they don't believe in a certain style of government. Are we all still on the same page? Okay, that's not what the verse means, but the president used it in a way that would probably make most people who say I'm a Christian feel really guilty if they didn't give the government more ability to tax. The president also said, to answer the responsibility we're given in Proverbs to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute. And that's a, that's, that's, that's a total fallacy because unless you're a felon, you can vote in the United States of America, right? People do have a voice. But also, I would caution you, when any politician, Republican or Democrat, uses the Bible, you need to be very careful in how they use it. Because I just want to just lay all my cards on the table. If you support abortion and you support partial birth abortion, how under the name of God do you sit here and lecture me from the book of Proverbs, quoting chapter 24, when it speaks of taking care of those who have no voice? That's the unborn. So if you heard that and you felt guilty because you didn't say, well, let's go ahead and let the federal government take care of it all, don't feel guilty because the Bible was misused, okay? Now let me say this. I think that we should pray for our Congress. Lord knows they need it, right? I don't know if you guys saw the shooting star several weeks ago. That was like checks bouncing in Washington. I don't know if anybody saw that late night, okay? We should pray for our state legislature, for our governor, for our, for our representatives, our senators, our president. Pray for the judges. Pray for the judges. Did you hear me? I said pray for the judges. All right. Are we all okay on a Sunday morning here? We should pray for them. Whether you are a libertarian, Republican, Democrat, Green Party, Weed Party, whatever it is, we should all pray for our elected leaders. And let me say this. I don't think that there is any Christian in this room who, if it would work, would not say, if we can do what Jesus did, if we can truly meet the needs of people, I, you know, I'm willing to give up more of my paycheck. I think that Christians are just like that. I think that if Christians truly knew that babies would be fed, that people's bills would be paid, that we'd help people get up and back to work, that they would do it. But the issue is, and we're not going to get off into this, that whenever politicians tell you, if you give me power when I'm separated from the state and the local level to fix your problems, it simply never works. That's not a democratic statement. That's not a Republican statement. That's not a libertarian statement. It just simply doesn't work as well as it does at the local level. So you say, Jeff, why would you mention any of that? Number one, when people misrepresent the Bible, it's my job. It's in my job description to help you not be misled. And secondly... If you get convicted, I mean, you say, well, Jeff, what is, I, 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 didn't, I didn't commit any crime this week, or maybe it was something I did. I'm not talking about that kind of convicted. I'm talking about when the Lord just shows you that you're wrong and he tells you you need to change. When that comes, we want it to be legitimate from the Bible and not from a politician, Republican or Democrat, trying to get us to give more power to them. Okay? 
Now that we've opened that can of worms, I just wanted to give that disclaimer because that's always the elephant in the room because Christians want to be compassionate, but the issue is how. We can talk to really intelligent people in this church. They can give you some great ideas. Any of our deacons, Fred, obviously, you know, they, they can tell you the best way to work that out. But the issue is for Christians, we want to be compassionate. All right, now notice what Jesus does does here in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we see a picture of incredible suffering. Notice there in the beginning of chapter 9, there's a guy who's a paralytic. Notice in verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, this guy, imagine if you had never been able to walk or... The text doesn't say, or if you had been able to walk at some time, but an accident happened and you could no longer walk. There was no little motorized cart. There was no hover around. There was no wheelchair. In fact, in that day, can we just imagine this in America? Is is it possible that if you wanted to go anywhere, you had to drag yourself or some people had to carry you? Incredible suffering. Notice you also have a picture uh, over in uh, verse number 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners uh-oh, came and were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is a picture of people who are spiritually sick. Tax collectors and sinners, you're like, does that mean the IRS? No, no, no. These guys were like professionally paid tax thieves. What, what Rome would give them the ability to do is they could take tax from people to give to Rome. But there, was no, there were no rules regulating how much more they took. And if you're the tax collector, if you told somebody to give you 5% extra and they said no, you just went and got the local Roman guard. And we all know what the Romans are capable of, Right? They're rough dudes. They're not, all right, they're going to come. It's, it, was, it was a corrupted racket. And that when the Bible uses the phrase sinners, it speaks of people who didn't even have anything to do with the temple. This, these are the type of people who have so much hurt in their life that they've just given up on the Lord. Do you have somebody like that, friend, family member? And they just say, you know what? I've been in drugs. I've been in alcohol. I've slept around. I have been in so many marriages. I can't fit it on one hand. I, my life is destroyed. My children are a wreck. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. Those types of folks who have given up. Who did Jesus go to? He went to them. And in their incredible suffering, Jesus ministered to them. I think of that once again, the guy... Who was a, a paralytic? I have a friend at Liberty. His name is Ricky, and he's got a condition um, to where he's only he's only about this this big. Do you, do you know Ricky Jordan? Okay, and um, we tried to go to lunch the other week, but but he totally stood me up. Like he's got way too much going on. So, um, but he's he gets around in his his little chair, motorized chair, and and I think about him. If he had been born here, his suffering would have been a thousand times worse. Whenever we look at history, whenever we look at the news, we see incredible suffering. Notice also, it says in verse number 14, um, the disciples were fasting. The Pharisees gave them a hard time about fasting. By the way, when you really begin to serve Jesus, people will take pot shots at you. Have you experienced that yet? Like, why do you have to go to Sunday school too? Isn't one hour a week enough or when... Jeff preaches like an hour and a half, hour 45. Just kidding. Uh, verse 18. Notice also this suffering. There was a ruler who came in and knelt before Jesus saying, now imagine this, parents. 
parents, saying, my daughter has just died. I have been told that the death of a child is the most painful thing that a person can experience. I remember when my brother Jordan died, it was horrible, horrific. It feels like as a brother, a part of your soul is just ripped out of you. And you're bleeding from the inside and there's no tourniquet that can cut it off. But for my parents, that blows my mind, right? Like mom and dad are both there when the kid comes into the world and they see the child grow to a certain age and then the child dies. Can you imagine how broken this ruler was? He comes. He's a ruler. And in that day, rulers didn't kneel. But he comes and he just crashes on his knees in front of Jesus and says, my daughter's dead. Incredible, incredible suffering. He's totally helpless. And not only that, in verse 27, Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, O son of David. Today, blind people can have seeing eye dogs, right? Blind people can have institutions to go to. There there are things such as Braille. They can even learn how to read with their fingers. Wow. Awesome. But in that day, unless your family was really well off and could take care of you, you were kicked to the curb and your job was have mercy on me. And just hoping some passerby would drop a nickel or two, a shilling into your cup and you could find food for the day. Have you ever thought, not losing your sight here in the good old U.S. of A. to where we have foundations and we have uh, safety nets for people. But imagine being in that day and time to where there were no charitable hospitals. Incredible, incredible suffering. Not only that, but it gets a little bit worse in verse 32. The suffering was to the point that there was a demon-possessed, oppressed man. To the point that the demon would not allow him to speak. And if you've ever read any accounts of demon possession in the Bible or contemporary accounts, you'll know that it is an absolute... Those people who have been delivered from demonic possession, it is an absolutely terrifying thing to where they feel that they are losing control. The demon comes and takes control. Incredible suffering. Not only that, but go over with me to verse number 35. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he what? He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, I read this, I just think of normal people, right? Normal people who have a a normal dwelling place, mobile home, house, apartment, condo. They go to their jobs. They bring home a paycheck. They have good times with their family, but they are absolutely having no direction in life whatsoever. It's like they don't have a point to live. And when Jesus saw that, when these people were harassed and helpless, he had compassion on them. Now imagine yourself in any one of those people's place. Then imagine God looking down into a sin-fractured world. And God saying, you know what? I'm going to not just send someone to tell them about me, but I'm going to send my son to be one of them. Are we, all, are we all grabbing a hold of that? The incarnation of Jesus? The fact that Matthew chapter 9 actually exists in the Bible? Like Jesus was there. He was a human. He came into the suffering world. He suffered. And that's an amazing, amazing text in the book of, of um, 
Hebrews when it says that our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen, church? We serve a God who's able to deliver, but a God who is able to sympathize because he has been there. He's been there. But not only do you see this picture of incredible suffering, but you see a picture of incredible callousness. Notice what happens there when the paralyzed man, Jesus, was speaking to him in verse number two. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, oh, here comes the religious crowd. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Like Jesus is there to help the man and the church crowd gets mad. Does that seem backwards to anybody here today or am I the only one? All right. Like Jesus comes and then verse four, I love how Jesus knows what people are thinking. Right? Like imagine being one of the disciples and you're there and you're thinking a bad thought and Jesus gives you this look like, nope. You're like, oh, he knew it, right? You're like, I think I'm going to go out later and I'm going to do something I shouldn't, even though I know I shouldn't, but I want to do it. Jesus is like, don't even think about it. Oh, I already did. You're going to repent right there. Like he knew. Notice what Jesus does in verse four. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, this is, this is WWE Smackdown, all right, in Koine Greek here. Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 7. Anybody want to take a stab? All right. And he rose and went home. He rose and went home. Like, you know that brother had to be in some kind of a daze. Right? Like, sometimes people jump. When Jesus heals them, sometimes people begin to talk. This dude just went straight home. He's like, man, I don't know what happened. Like that was some freaky stuff, but I was lame. And then Jesus came and he said, get up and go home. So if he made me unlame, then I'm going to get up and I'm going to, y'all with me? I'm going to go home, right? Like that's an awesome day. I'm just going to obey that guy if he made me unlame because Maybe something else will happen. So he just goes home. And then I love this in verse number eight. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Can I get a witness? Right? Like some people say, do resurrections still happen? I don't know. But if I'm ever at a funeral and one happens, that place is clearing. All right? So they were afraid. And they glorified God. Notice what happens also. Remember when we talked about those sinners there in verse 10 who Jesus was hanging out with? What did the religious crowd come and do? Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, saw what? Saw Jesus hanging out with people who needed Jesus. This is amazing. But when they heard it, uh, he said, excuse me, verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do Christians spend time with non-Christians? Why do we take people out to lunch? Why do we go to our neighbor's houses? Why do, why do we go work out with people who are not saved? Because often what can happen in our church culture, have you, ever, have you ever sensed this? Sometimes people, like, they don't do this on purpose, but they, like, spill some spiritual whiteout on this passage, and it goes, bloop, so they pass right over it. Because what can happen sometimes with Christians, especially in families, is we can say, well, I don't want anybody to corrupt me, right? I, I don't want to be around bad influences, Okay? I don't want anybody, it's kind of like we have the light of the gospel. Like, I don't want that darkness to mess up my light. 
I mean, if we've been saved, then God has placed us in the world, but not to be of the world. That's not saying that if you've got like a middle school student, you're like, dude, totally go to that party, right? Because that's probably a little bit too much temptation for a student to handle, okay? Talking about, obviously, uh, wisdom being put in the middle of that. And the spiritually sick... Jesus went to them. I just think it's so ironic that this incredible callousness is that the religious crowd got mad at Jesus for going to reach out to the people that the religious crowd should have already reached. I I, I found this, not here, but I found this in my very short 31 years of life. That often when Christians, when pastors, when churches begin to make a concentrated effort into those people who may not be considered church people. And praise the Lord for that. Amen. That some people within the church will begin to criticize the ones who are doing what Jesus told us to do. But my question for the ones who criticize is what have you done? Show me the people that you've won to Christ. Show me the people that you've discipled. Show me the church that you're a part of and how you helped it be a vibrant church. And if none of those factors have anything more than attendance, then if you're serving the Lord, don't listen to those people who don't serve the Lord. Amen, church? Don't listen to it. I like what Mark Driscoll said. He said that... um, this is, this is great. He says, he's talking about an evangelist who some people would criticize. Uh, Greg Laurie, great, great pastor from California. He said, here's one guy who's led thousands of people to Christ. And here's a guy, somebody who would criticize that, who didn't and doesn't like the way the other guy did it. Right? It's like, well, you go lead people to the Lord. You invite folks to church. I like what uh, Moody said. He had some lady come up to him after a sermon, and she said, I don't like the way that you share the gospel. And he said, well, I'm sorry about that, ma'am. How do you share the gospel? She says, I don't. And he says, I like my way better than yours. Right? Right? That's That's a good word. So if you've got people coming at you from inside the church saying, why do you do that? Why do you talk to them? Just simply, don't don't be arrogant. Don't be a jerk. But just say, "Well, well, who do you witness to. Maybe you can help me out. And a lot of times the people who criticize don't do anything anyway. So don't listen to it. Here's what David Clark said, incredible scholar. He said, mean spirited, but theologically correct Christians are a plague. That's tough. Let me me read it again. Because that was awkward, but that was an enjoyable awkward. Let's, Let's read it again. David Clark said, mean spirited, but theologically correct Christians are a plague. Why is that? Because a mean-spirited but theologically correct Christian is nothing more than a hypocrite. Because the scribes and the Pharisees pretty well had it down. And I haven't met one preacher or one deacon or one church member that had the Old Testament totally memorized. They did, but they had no love. Jesus came and demonstrated compassion. And notice also what, what happens there in the rest of it. We've got people when Jesus goes to, to heal the girl, right? The girl who had died. What, what do people do when Jesus says that she is, in verse 24, she's not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. And then the text says in verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside. Imagine laughing when someone is there dead. When a child has just died. Not only that, but when Jesus goes and he cast out the demon from the man who was oppressed there. In verses 32 through 34, the Pharisees 
we say in verse 34, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. No rejoicing, no excitement. None of the Pharisees were stoked out of their mind that this guy had been set free. And that begs the question for me, it's a very convicting text, what do I really get excited about? You ever thought about that? When people go to sports games or when people, you know, their party wins an election or something like that, what do we get excited about? The people in Jesus' day who had the truth didn't get excited about what they should have. So, what the Bible says, this is where we're going to turn it. Not only do we see incredible pain, incredible callousness, but we saw incredible compassion from Jesus. Notice what Jesus does with the paralytic. He heals the guy. What does he do with the person who had died? He raised the little girl from the dead. Can you imagine? Imagine that. This is before the New Testament had been written. And you're the dad. You're the mom. Your daughter had died. She's 12. This teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, comes in and he raises her from the dead. I mean, that's like the lowest valley and the highest high. And then Jesus goes by the blind men and he asks them in verse 28, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. And he healed them. He healed them of being blind. He gave them their sight. Not only that, he healed the the demonic, oppressed man's muteness. And some people say, no, hold on, Jeff. That that seems like a lot of stuff that happened a long time ago. But the miracles still happen today. Well, um, for you nerds out there uh, who would like a book assignment, this is... A brand new release called Miracles, The Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. This is by top-rate scholar, world scholar, um, Craig Keener. And in the first volume, there are 594 footnotes of contemporary accounts of God healing people. And this is not just in Africa or South Asia. This is in North America. You say, Jeff, do we believe that God can still heal people? I don't know about you, but I do. I believe that God can still heal people. I don't believe that it was only confined to the days of the Bible. However, I think that we all should be very cautious when a so-called healer tells us through the television screen that he can heal if we only send in a $1,000 donation for a prayer cloth. All right? Okay? So we believe that God can do it, but I don't believe that... That you can commercialize it. Okay? Let's just leave it at that. Because I'll begin to take shots and be out of the Spirit very, very quickly. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And um, you don't want to do that right before there. So notice what Jesus does. uh, Bring it to close there in verse 35 through uh, 38. He goes to all of the villages. He is teaching. He's proclaiming. He's healing every affliction. Then he had compassion on them. And then Jesus said, here it is. To his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, when we give Christian compassion to meet people's needs, it's like an alien concept. 
in the world. How many of you have ever, well, that, that's, I don't want to ask for a show of hands because you may feel guilty. If you've ever seen the Godfather movie, the whole concept there is if I do something for you, you do something for me. Grazie, right? Like it's an even exchange. That's the way the world does compassion. But when Christians act out of Christ's compassion, it is an act of grace that is neither earned nor deserved because we receive grace that was neither earned nor deserved. I remember on a mission trip to Haiti, there was one of our friends named Tom. And Tom had lived a really rough life. He had been into drugs and alcohol. The Lord had saved him radically. And then we were there with all of these orphan children, these Asian orphan children. And Tom had had a past in, he's a white guy, had a past in racism as well. And all of these Haitian children came in and he got down, kind of just squatted down and, and they just wanted to play with his hair. So he just got like mobbed by like 20, 30 kids. And they're all like, yeah, you know, like kids do like VB time. Yay. And they're all around him. And this dude, like he's all tatted up, you know, he surfed He's pretty big sized guy too. Like, you, you know, if you saw him, you wouldn't be like, I want to go say something mean to that guy. Wouldn't want to do it. Tough guy. Just there, grown man, absolutely broken and weeping because he received compassion from people that he had previously hated. I think of Francis Chan, if you want to do a Google search, just Francis Chan, you will be blessed your socks will be blessed off as the Baptist saying goes. I don't know what that means. Like you're listening to the sermon and all of a sudden pew, pew, across the room like your socks fly off. I don't know. But um, I don't know where that came from either. Francis Chan was telling about him visiting an orphanage in India that his church supports. And he says as he went into this classroom, the teacher told the children, turn around and there's Pastor Francis. Every single one of you are sponsored by someone in his church in California. And he said they all stood on their chairs. And they turned around and faced him. And all of them cheered and clapped. And he said, God just broke me. Compassion is not just something that we feel. It's something that we do. I remember... When Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I think of the first time I went to Kazakhstan. I, someone like, oh, Jeff, you go to a lot of places. I had never planned on going anywhere that ended with Stan. The guy who was my boss at All the Baptist Church signed me up for the trip. I went towards the end of the trip. We were way, way, way. It was even close to China in a certain region, Taldi Kurgan. And we went to visit this old Russian lady she was well up in years. She could barely see. House was a wreck. She had a son. He was an alcoholic. And I remember sitting around with this lady and we were communicating through the translator. And she said that even though her husband had died, even though her son is an alcoholic, and I tell you what, I shook her hand. She worked her garden every day. I, I, I would put her up against alignment, right? Like one of those ladies who's just had to do it. She's just had to. And she said, but one of the songs, I didn't even know they knew this song there. She said that it has kept me encouraged. Is great is thy faithfulness. Isn't that great song. 
And so I was the designated guitar guy on the trip. So we actually had the guitar. And she said, can you sing the song as I, you know, Russian, English, I don't know how all that, you know, meshes up. So, so our group just sat around with this, this lady and she was just sitting there. And, and, and you could tell, like her eyes were glazed or she barely see it all. And we just began to sing, great is thy faithfulness. And I looked back and that was one of the pivotal moments in my life. Because the man who had driven us to go see her was a former, former Russian vodka alcoholic himself. And I looked at myself a saved, former, religious, hypocrite, prideful, arrogant person. I looked at this old lady left to her own, no social security, no net. I looked at Sergei, this guy who had been a former alcoholic. His van even broke going up a hill. This guy was so filled by the Lord that it broke. And he was like, Slava Bogo, which is praise God. I was like, no, Slava Bogo, fix the caro, right? Like the American just wanted to get it done. This guy was so filled with joy. He didn't know how to fix the car. We ended up rigging it. And it, it, was, it was an amazing story. And I looked around and I said, this is the compassion of the Lord. And when the Lord uses you to reach out to people, it is going to be something that the world desperately needs. But Satan will tell you that you cannot make a difference. These past two weeks, I was able to stay with a retired professor of Lynchburg College. He taught microbiology for about 20 years. And he had gone to Japan after the bomb had been dropped in World War II. He's going to be 88 this coming Sunday. And somebody... He's going back to Brazil this summer. Works five days a week at a lab. Awesome. And he told me that he came back as a corpsman staying at a place in Maryland for wounded soldiers. And he said that they were told that you can't speak about religion. He said, but there was one time that I was by a soldier who was getting ready to die. And he said, and he's, he's like the, the nicest, laid back, um, doesn't want to speak out a whole lot. But he said that the Holy Spirit came to me, told me just, this, just the week before uh, this week. He said the Holy Spirit came and told me, witness to this man. And he said, I just opened up my mouth. He said, and the gospel poured out. And I shared the gospel with this man as he was dying. Because compassion will cause us to even break ranks with what the world tells us you can and cannot do. Never let anyone tell you, never let Satan, never let your own thoughts tell you that reaching out in compassion to give someone something they need or to speak the gospel will not work because the word of God is powerful. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. This is our time of invitation. A time to recommit our hearts, to be compassionate. A time to repent for being self-centered, for thinking that the world revolves only around us. As we give this invitation, we're going to open up the altar for a time for any of us to come down and pray and ask the Lord to give us a heart of flesh. A heart that is not hardened towards people, but a heart that is willing to break And men, it's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. Ask us to give, ask God to give you the heart of Christ. Just strong enough to take the sin of the world, soft enough to be broken for the suffering of people. If you've never been saved, 
Ask Jesus, cry out to Jesus, ask him to save you. I'm going to be standing down here in the center aisle. If you need to join the church, if you need to be baptized, if you've been saved today, or if you're like, I'm ready to follow Christ, we're going to ask you to come and take me by the hand and stand up for Jesus. Father, we ask that this time would be honoring to you and you would give the ones who need to make commitments or repent to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. We're standing as we sing.